we attended a, uh, a little Baptist church uh, that Sunday morning, um, the um, Golgotha Church, uh, the one where Richard Wormbrand was baptized, if you remember me sharing about that. And, uh, but we thought it was interesting uh, through the interpreter that the first 45 minutes to an hour uh, before they actually got to the time of preaching and that sort of thing, uh, was they would sing a hymn or two, and then one of the leaders would get up and say a few words. They would sing a hymn or two, and the leader would get up and say a few words. And um, he spoke twice to them, and both times it was kind of getting on them a little bit. Uh, the first one was, uh, our church service starts at 9 in the morning. Do you love Christ? Why would you not be here? Be here on time. The second one was, and I thought this was interesting because we'd just been talking about this on Wednesday nights, um, when somebody prays and says amen, why aren't you saying amen to? <laughs> Do you not agree with the prayer? Do you not believe what was said? Are we not one in this? And he, of course, he was getting all pumped up and excited about this, you know, but he's trying to get on. He's, he's saying, you know, say anyway. So I just thought that was interesting because we've been talking about that here. So I, I do encourage you uh, as we pray. Uh, e- even more important than the saying the amen is the actual being in the spirit of prayer together. Don't see it as a time to come and listen to other people pray or let your mind wander about other things. Join into the prayer. And one way you can show that is, is by saying amen audibly at the end. But uh, the main thing is be in the prayer when we pray together. That has nothing to do with the sermon. So let's, let's get to the sermon. Uh, Genesis chapter 16. Uh, now let me begin reading for us uh, again. And let me begin in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, that's Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. And therefore the well was called Bir Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Well, the original plan was to move to Genesis 17 tonight. However, midway through this past week, um, I decided it would be wisest for us to devote one more message to this passage. And I came to that conclusion as I was looking through the book of Galatians and was recognizing that the book of Galatians and our passages in Genesis have a lot in common. Uh, In particular, the central truth of the book of Galatians and these passages in Abram about Abraham are the same central truth. Uh, Namely, that sinners can come to know God and enter His promises and have His promises by faith. Faith is the theme of the life of Abraham. 
And faith is the theme of the book of Galatians. The, the Christians in Galatia were very, very dear to Paul's heart. Uh, in God's providence, because of an, an affliction, Paul came to them and preached the gospel to them instead of moving on somewhere else. Uh, you may remember from our, our time in Romans 1 that Paul told the Roman Christians that he had often intended to come to them, but each time had been prevented. Well, perhaps it was on a, such an occasion when Paul's sights were set on Rome, he had planned on going this way, and God brought upon Paul some sort of affliction, perhaps some sort of sickness, so that he could not continue. And so here he was in Galatia. So he set up camp there for a while and began to preach the gospel. Whatever the circumstances, God knew what he was doing and providentially landing Paul in this region because Paul preached the gospel and people believed. In fact, they loved what they were hearing. It was encouraging to them. And as they became drawn to Christ, as they became drawn to the gospel, so also Paul himself became very, very dear to these Christians. Uh, Paul says in Galatians, some of us saw this Wednesday night, Paul said uh, that they had such a love for him at that time that if he had asked them to, to give him their eyes, to gouge out their eyes and give them to him, uh, they would have done so. Uh, some people ask, why did he use that illustration? Some think that maybe the affliction he was experiencing had something to do with his eyes, uh, but we really don't know. point is, these people were very, very dear to Paul. And, um, however, by the time Paul writes this letter to the Galatians, um, things have changed. Uh, a group of false teachers called Judaizers have come in, and they've begun to turn the people against Paul. And more importantly, they've begun to turn the people against the gospel that Paul had preached to them. Um, the, call, the, the, gospel that, the gospel that Paul had preached was that Christ is everything, that Christ is our salvation. Christ is our righteousness. Uh, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, that Christ is the promised Messiah. Christ is the Son of God. Christ is the very glory of God made known to us that those who have Christ have everything that they need. Those who have Christ are made right with God. Those who have Christ are greatly blessed beyond their imaginations. All the promises made to Abraham become ours if we have Christ. And the Judaizers came in and said, yes, having Christ, resting in Christ, trusting Christ, faith in Christ, that's a good thing. But it's not enough. You have to have something more in order to truly be saved. Our salvation is not bound up in the person and work of Christ alone. No, we must add our own good works to Him. We must, in particular, they said, continue to adhere to the Old Testament law. We have no right to forsake circumcision. We have no right to forsake the feast days and the sacrifices and these other elements of Judaism. And if we fail to perform those works, our standing before God is compromised and we cannot be assured of our salvation. The result was that these people that Paul cared deeply about were being brought back into spiritual slavery. Rather than seeing that their relationship with God was secured by Christ and Christ alone, they had fallen back 
into a works righteousness system that left them constantly burdened by this task of keeping up their salvation, keeping themselves saved, not losing their salvation by failing to do these things that God had called them to do. True believers know that salvation is all of Christ. They strive passionately to do good works, but only out of the joy of already being a child of God in Christ. The true believer loves God's law because it reveals how we can best worship God and express our love for God who has saved us so greatly in Christ. The law is a gift to us that we will know our God even better. But for the Galatians, the law was not a revelation of how we can better serve God and glorify Him. No, it was a terrible burden placed upon them. It was a burden placed upon their shoulders that if they failed to keep it, it would crush them. So when we get to Galatians 4, 21-31, we'll go there in a minute, Paul wants to help the Galatians understand that what these Judaizers was teaching would lead them back into spiritual slavery. He wants them to see. He, he is pleading with them to see. Yes, literally pleading. I mean, some of the most passionate language in the Bible is in the book of Galatians as Paul pleads with them. He wants them to see that God's people are a people of freedom, a people who are resting so securely in Christ and in God's promises fulfilled in Christ that now they are no longer chained by trying to keep up this salvation. When Paul wants to teach this important lesson, when Paul is pleading with the Galatians to see the truth of salvation by faith in Christ alone, what passage do you think he points to in the Old Testament? Well, among others, he points to Genesis 16. He points to the story of Hagar and Abram and Sarai and Ishmael. Um, Paul unpacks this passage that we've been looking at the last two weeks. He unpacks some of its spiritual truth. And I thought it would be kind of foolish of me to just move on to Genesis 17 and not let us take some time to see what Paul himself had to say about this story that we've been studying. And so I want you to maybe keep your Bible opened in two places. Maybe don't, don't, don't leave Genesis 16 because you'll want to see where Paul is getting what he's saying. But at the same time, I want us to go to Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31, so that we can see what Paul does with this passage and why it was important to him. Let's go right in. Look at Galatians 4, verse 21. In verse 21, Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? <laughs> He's exposing their hypocrisy, right? These people are saying, but we don't want to forsake the law. But in reality, by seeking to be right with God by their own adherence to the law, they were forsaking the law. Because remember, the law isn't just Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the commands that we find in there. The law of God, strictly speaking, technically speaking, is the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis is a part of the law of God. And what Paul was saying is, you're not listening to the law. You're not listening to the truth that it's teaching. Now, he could go to a lot of places. 
Why do you think he goes to Genesis 16? Of all the other passages in the Pentateuch that he could have gone to to show that even the books of law call for them to be people of faith rather than people of works, he goes to Genesis 16. And here's why I think he does that. I think it's because the situation in Genesis 16 so closely mirrors what is happening with these Galatian Christians. In Genesis 16, God had made a promise to Abram and Sarai, and all that Abram and Sarai were to do to receive the promise was to believe. That's all they had to do was believe. But when they began to doubt, when they began to fall into unbelief, they decided they might need to throw some of their own works in there to get the promise themselves. Right? So also, the Galatians... They had received the promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But now they have begun to doubt the promise. They think in order for us to obtain salvation, we, yes, we still believe God's promise, but we might need to do some of our own scheming, add some of our own works to the situation. Do, do you see how the two situations parallel? Both are people turning to works because they don't truly, fully, wholeheartedly believe God's promise. They think something of their own needs to be added in. And so that's why he goes to this passage. Look at what he says in verse 22 and 23. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that's Ishmael, one by a free woman, that's Isaac. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now Paul is simply laying out here what he expects these Galatian Christians to already know. They already claim to love the law. They already claim to be attached to the law. So they should know this story very well. Certainly, Paul thinks, they see the difference between these two sons and how these two sons came into the world. Ishmael, he says, the son of the slave woman, was born according to the flesh. He was born according to the normal ways of procreation. And out of Abraham and Sarai's attempt to get what they wanted their own way. Ishmael was born according to the flesh, both physically and spiritually. Physically, Sarai gave Hagar to Abraham, and he was born according to the flesh in, in the natural way that people are conceived and born. Spiritually, Ishmael was born according to the flesh, and that he was conceived and born out of the sinful desire of Abraham and Sarai to get what they wanted and to get it now in their own timing, in their own way, by their own strength, by their own ability. And Hagar was the instrument they were going to use to get what they wanted. Isaac, on the other hand, was born through promise. At a time when Abraham was a hundred years old and reproductively as good as dead. That's what Paul says in Romans 4. Abraham was as good as dead reproductively. Sarah, at that point, was 90 years old. She had been barren, incapable of having children, and she is now 90 years old. We're told that the way of women was no longer with her. So there was no longer any way that Abraham or Sarah could contribute to them having a son anymore. There was nothing else they could do. Abraham and Sarah could no longer try and take matters into their own hands. Their ability was gone. 
Their strength was gone. They could not make the promise come true. At that point in their lives, their only hope was that God would come in in His own power and do something they could never do. Then it was, when they, when they could do nothing on their own, that God came and touched their bodies and caused them to be able to reproduce, and Isaac was born. Thus, Ishmael, for Paul, represents us trying to do things in our own power, us trying to have what God has promised through our own ability, our own strength, our our own means. While Isaac, he says, represents us simply looking to God and God doing it all on his own. It's all him. It's all his strength. It's all his power. O Galatians, you say you want to obey the law. Do you see what the law is teaching you? You say you want to obey the law. Well, obey it already. The law is calling you to look to God alone, to rest in God alone, to rest in what God provides through His power alone, which is Christ. Do you not see the disastrous results of trying to add your own works, your own ability, your own strength to the equation? Look at the beginning of verse 24. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Stop. Now for for those of us who, who love the Bible, and we are concerned that the Bible be interpreted rightly, this word allegorically can strike fear in our hearts. Um, the last thing we want is for people to start taking the Bible and saying everything in the Bible is symbolic and then start using their creativity to start saying this means this and this means this and coming up with all sorts of interpretations of biblical passages. Um, the events, uh, it, what, what Paul was talking about here is not going crazy. He's not, going, he's not saying, I'm going to use my imagination and I'm going to be creative and I'm going to take Genesis 16 and I'm just going to stick whatever meaning I want. So I, I'm going to say Hagar means this. But I'm going to say Sarah. That's not what he's doing here. Rather, he's taking this passage and receiving it simply as God meant for it to be received. The events in Genesis 16, just like all of the narratives, all of the stories of the Bible, came about in the providence of God and were recorded in Scripture in order to teach us something. Every historical account in the Bible is teaching spiritual truth. Listen to William Hendricks, and this is good. He says, God has given us such narratives, like Genesis 16, not only to teach us what happened in the past, but also to enable us to apply the lessons of the past to our present situation. Such things, then, are true as history and valuable as, get this term, graphic pedagogy. (laughs) Okay? Um, as a graphic illustration. In other words, every historical account in the Bible is historically true and exists as a graphic illustration of something God wants to teach us. In a sense, they're parables, but they're parables grounded in reality. They're parables that are true stories, which have a spiritual meaning. Hendrickson goes on to say that the lesson here taught 
is derived as naturally from the narrative as an almond kernel is picked out of an almond shell. I stress all of that simply to say that Paul is not finding some strange secret meaning in this text, nor is he using the biblical text inappropriately. Rather, Paul is picking up what he thinks is a very obvious lesson. He is picking up something that he thinks is an obvious correlation that we should already know, that we should have already seen if we know our Old Testaments well. Of course, Hagar represents the Old Covenant. Of course, Sarai represents the new covenant. The the story of Hagar and Ishmael is all about trying to do things through our own way, through our own works. What was the problem in the old covenant? Of course, Sarai and Isaac represent the new covenant. People looking to God through faith alone. I mean, is that not obvious? That's the way he's talking here. You should have already seen this. What is the correlation? What is it he sees? The connection that he thinks should be obvious to us is that these two women, Hagar and Sarai, and really the stories around them, the sons that they gave birth to, that they represent two covenants. He talks about Hagar first. Hagar represents trying to get God's blessing through our own power, through our own strength. It's the old covenant in which people kept trying to earn God's favor through law-keeping. Now, by the way, God never intended for His law to be used that way. The point of the law was to point them to Christ, was to point them to faith. But this is the way that Israel twisted it, using God's law as a means to try and obtain His promises through their own power. Right? Just as, um, well, just as God gave Abram and Hagar, uh, they had the physical ability to have this child, yet God never intended for them to use it this way. Abram was never uh, supposed to, to marry Hagar and take on a second wife. It was a misuse of what God had given. So also the point of the Old Covenant law was to say, look to Christ, see your need for Christ. But in the Old Covenant, people twisted it and used it to try and get God's blessings through their own power. Sarai, on the other hand, or Sarah, represents God's blessing coming to us through promise, through faith. She represents the gift of God's blessing by His power alone. Listen to Paul explain, verse 24, picking up verse 24 again. Focusing first on Hagar and the old covenant. One is from, one, one of these ladies is what he's saying, one covenant, the old covenant. One is from Mount Sinai. Bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. Now follow this closely. Mount Sinai is where the old covenant was given. Hagar represents this old covenant and her children, those who hold fast to the old covenant and want to remain under its sacrifices and its rituals and all of its instructions, they are, they are in slavery. Just as Hagar was a slave and the son she bore, Ishmael, was born into slavery. So those who cling to the old covenant, those who don't want to go to Christ alone in the new covenant, but want to cling to the old rituals and the sacrifices and their old works, they are clinging to slavery. They bind themselves to the Old Testament law 
as a means of trying to get God's promises through their own strength. But as they do, they bring themselves into a state of slavery. For can any of us keep the law perfectly? Absolutely not. They're bringing themselves into a kind of worldview, a kind of life where they will be constantly fearful. Am I saved today? Have I done enough? Is God pleased with me now? What burden must I now take on? What task must I now complete in order for God to love me? Paul says that this corresponds to the present Jerusalem, that is the Jerusalem of of his day. For this was the state of Jerusalem in his day. Though the Messiah had come, though the one to whom all the Old Covenant had pointed to had come, though the fulfillment of the Old Covenant had come, the people in Jerusalem, the vast majority of Jews in Paul's day, rejected Jesus, rejected the Messiah, rejected the New Covenant, and clanged to the law. Clang. Clung to the law. This will not work. And he illustrates this in a creative way. He says, after all, Mount Sinai is in Arabia. I don't know what you think of when you think of Arabia. Arabia is desert. <laughs> there's, there's no life there. His point is that this, that this grand promise that God made, that in the prophets we see is the promise of this glorious heavenly Jerusalem, he says it's not going to be achieved by clinging to these Old Testament laws and the Old Testament rituals and seeking to just please God by your own works and your own strength. That covenant was given in the desert and God did it their own purpose. To say you're not going to get life from this. This isn't going to bring you life. The Old Covenant doesn't give life. The law, keeping the law, is not a way to eternal life. It points us to our helplessness. It points us to our need for God. It points us to His promises and to the grace He gives through Jesus Christ. But our keeping of the law, our keeping of of God's instructions has no power to bring us into the promises of God. We don't have the ability to keep it perfectly. And in that sense, the Old Covenant is as dead as 100-year-old Abraham was. It has no ability to give life. And so those who cling to it are in slavery. And it's a slavery that leads to death. Look at verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. In other words, in contrast to the Jerusalem of his day, where the people were caught up in trying to please God through their own strength and their own power, trying to be good enough for God and keep his law perfectly, he says there is another Jerusalem. Remember, the city of Jerusalem is often used in the Bible to represent the glorious kingdom of God. The promises that God made to Abraham, the promises that the the people were trying to obtain of this glorious kingdom where God would be blessing them and they would dwell in the promised land forever and ever, all of that was summed up in this word, Jerusalem. Jerusalem represents this perfect kingdom of holy people ruled by a great and perfect king. Jerusalem represented the hope of Israel, of the promised Messiah reigning over this people in a promised land. and It would be a glorious kingdom. That's what Jerusalem meant to them. That's why it was precious to them. It was to be centered in this place called Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, it would then spread out and, and be God's blessing to the world. 
But this Jerusalem, Paul says, is not a capital in the Middle East. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the kingdom that has just been established in Paul's day and is nearing completion in our own day. It is called the Jerusalem above. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's called the, the heavenly Jerusalem. Because its king, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in heaven. Some of its citizens have already died. Our loved ones who died in Christ, a part of that heavenly Jerusalem, they're already in heaven. Some of us who are citizens of that Jerusalem, we're still here on earth. But we're pilgrims and we're strangers. This world is not our home. But on the last day, the Jerusalem that is above will come down from heaven to earth. Revelation 21, right? The new Jerusalem will come down. There will be only one earthly Jerusalem. And it will be the kingdom of God established forever. In other words, he's using all of these pictures to make the same point. There's Hagar and there's Sarah. Trying to have God's promises through my strength depending on God and God alone, for there's no other way, right? The old covenant, the way it was twisted by Israel, trying to obtain God's promises through my own strength. New covenant, trusting in what God has provided in Christ, in Christ alone. The Jerusalem of Paul's day, a kingdom of people trying to please God by their own works, trying to do things in their own strength. The Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, a kingdom of people who depend on God and God alone. And trust in what he has given in Christ. The, the question that he's really asking the Galatians is this, and I'd ask it to you. To which Jerusalem do you belong? Which group do you fit in? Are you striving to have God's love and his favor and his salvation and his blessings by being good enough? Do you say with your lips, yes, I love Christ, but then you also feel that you must do this or do that or God will not be pleased and you will lose your salvation? Or are you truly a part of the heavenly Jerusalem, the new covenant people of God who rest in Christ and Christ alone and rest securely in His work, knowing that none of ours needs to be added to what He has done? Okay. In our faith, as new covenant people, we are free from the law. Oh, happy condition. We love the law. We learn from the law how to express our love to our glorious Savior. If we are Christians, then our mother Jerusalem is not a city in the Middle East. It is a kingdom that is being built this very day, which will stretch into eternity. It's sometimes called Mount Zion, right? The, the mount on which Jerusalem uh, is found. It is the church. It is the kingdom of God. When we talk about evangelism, when we talk about missions, we're talking about the building of this great kingdom, this great Jerusalem, this great Mount Zion. And every citizen, every member, is a person who's resting in God and God alone, knowing that I am dead. I have no ability in and of myself to get these promises. All I can do is wait and trust God's word and wait for him to provide. Look at verse 27. Look at as Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah. He quotes in particular Isaiah 54, verse 1. Here's what Paul says, verse 27. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. 
you who are not in labor. Basically what he's saying there is, be in labor, you who are not in labor. <laughs> For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. When Isaiah wrote that, Isaiah was speaking to Jerusalem, to the earthly Jerusalem of his day. And because of the Babylonian captivity, because God's people had sinned and sinned and sinned, and finally God brought in the, the, the Syrians first against the ten tribes, and then uh, after that the Babylonians come in and, and siege Jerusalem and destroy it, and now God's people have been taken away into captivity, and Isaiah is speaking to a Jerusalem that is bereft of her children. They are gone. Jerusalem is, is practically empty. This is no glorious kingdom like they've been waiting for. And there certainly are no multitudes of Abraham's descendants like the stars dwelling there. It's a broken down, destroyed, besieged, empty city. Barren. Barren is Sarah. And yet God speaks through Isaiah to the city, telling her to rejoice, for she will have many children. On an earthly sense, he's speaking about the return of the captives. He's speaking of the day when Cyrus of Persia is going to issue the decree and, and all of a sudden these people of Israel who are part of the remnant who want to return to Jerusalem, they will begin going back to their city. And Jerusalem will again, the earthly Jerusalem will again have people there. And the temple will be rebuilt and the walls will be rebuilt. But the main sense in which God is speaking in Isaiah is of the kingdom of God which at that time, very few members, only a remnant of Israel. But very soon, with the coming of Christ, great multitudes would begin being brought in. The gospel would go out to the Gentiles. This kingdom would begin to be built in a massive way. <coughs> Let me quote from you. He, he quoted verse 1. Let me read to you the first three verses of Isaiah 54. Hear what Paul is thinking of, what he has in mind. Speaking to Jerusalem. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who was married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will, and will people the desolate cities. In other words, God is saying to His people, to His kingdom, to the, to the spiritual Jerusalem of the day, get ready, make preparation. He uses this illustration of the tent. You're going to need to make your tent larger. Your tent's going to be stretched out to the right. Your tent's going to be stretched out to the left. You need to make sure that your stakes are strengthened because you're about to get a whole lot bigger. A lot more people were coming in. He's prophesying about the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, people coming in with the coming of the gospel and the Gentiles to the world. How is this going to happen? How is this going to come to pass? Think first about it on the, on the earthly level. How, how is this city, which is desolate, barren, broken down, besieged, Israel is scattered. It's not like they're all in one place like they were in Egypt when they were enslaved there. They were all over the place. They've been scattered. The, the uh, kings of Babylon wanted them to lose their identity. 
wanted them to mix in into the people so that they would no longer even think of themselves as Jews anymore? Did they have any power to bring themselves back to Israel and to make it this glorious grand nation that God had promised? They had no power whatsoever. If God didn't do it, it wasn't going to happen. And so it is with the kingdom of God. How is this kingdom going to be built? How are the Gentiles going to come in? How is Abraham going to have descendants of many, many multitudes and multitudes of nations? And How is all of that going to be fulfilled? It's only going to happen if God does it. Well, that's the thing. That's the truth. We must look to God and God alone. We must look to what God provides and what God provides alone. When it comes to our salvation, we must not think that we can somehow, in our own strength, in our own ability, make something of ourselves right with God. Only God can provide what we need. And He has done so through the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have the promise of being spared on the last day and entering into heaven. God calls us to believe on Christ, to entrust our eternal welfare to Christ, to His capable hands, and to patiently wait. We are simply called to anticipate the heaven that is coming to us, the life with God that awaits us, and to live a joyful, peaceful, useful life here on earth as we wait, trusting in Christ. Look at verses 28 through 31. Verses 28 through 31. Because Paul still has hope for the Galatians. He trusts they have not yet fully given over to the teaching of these Judaizers. He believes the end. They will prove themselves to be gods. And so he says in verse 28, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. He says you. He's speaking to all of them. doesn't matter whether they're Jew or Gentile. Doesn't matter whether Abraham's blood is, is flowing through their veins. The Gentiles in Galatia, they don't have to submit to the Old Testament rituals or the laws. If they are resting in Christ, if they are looking to what God has given in Christ, they are his brothers. They are like Isaac, children of promise. Like Isaac, every true Christian is the result of a miracle. Isaac's birth was a miracle. Our new birth was a miracle. We don't, we don't make ourselves Christians out of our own strength. We don't make ourselves justified before God. and We don't cause ourselves to be sanctified. And we don't glorify ourselves before God. We do nothing of salvation in our own strength. But like Isaac, it all begins with God causing us to be born again in this great miracle. It's a work of the Spirit. And it's a work of the Spirit from first to last. From being born again, to being justified, to being sanctified, to being glorified, to entering into the very presence of God. It is a work of God from first to last. Our entire life is built around God's promise. We stake everything on what God has said. Christians are those who truly believe that in Jesus Christ we are saved and all the glorious blessings are ours. Period. Period. In Jesus Christ, everything. 
as we wait for the last day, as we wait for heaven, we must not think that our lives here on earth will be easy. In fact, Paul hasn't finished reminding us of all the truths taught by the story of Hagar and Sarah. Look at what he says in verse 29. Verse 29. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born in according to the Spirit, so also it is now. You see, those who are in spiritual slavery, seeking to earn God's favor by good works, will persecute those who are spiritually free. There's something about the heart that is busy trying to please God in its own strength that does not like it when they see someone at peace in Christ and Christ alone. He points to the story of Ishmael and Isaac. This comes later in Genesis when the baby Isaac is born and Ishmael at 13, 14 years old looks at the baby Isaac and mocks him. And so what happens uh, in Paul's day, the Gentiles had embraced their freedom in Christ. I am right with God through Christ and Christ alone. It doesn't matter whether I eat pork or not. It doesn't matter whether I, I, I keep this particular religious tradition. I am right with God through Christ. And there were some who did not like that. How can you claim to follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and eat pork? How can you claim to follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and not be circumcised? I don't like that. Paul says that these people came into the churches of Galatia to spy out their freedom and to bring them back into slavery. In our own day, there are some who will not appreciate it if they see you claiming to know and love God and to follow Jesus, and yet you don't submit to their list of rules. They've created their own ideas of what it means to be a Christian and the laws that they think you must keep in order to be right with God. And they would have you follow them into that. And to once again going back to keeping a list of rules, traditions, regulations to be right with God. They press their list of do's and don'ts upon your conscience so that when you slip and fall, when you break one of their, their rules, you begin to think, does God still love me? Is God still happy with me? Am I still secure in my salvation? There are people in Rocky Mount who believe that if you have a sip of alcohol, you lose your salvation. There are some, not as many as used to be, who, who believe that if you play cards, you are not a Christian. There's still some, not many anymore, but who would say that if you come to church and you don't wear a suit and tie or dress to your ankles, you are not truly a Christian. They have their list. And you know what's scary, folks? It's so easy for us to have ours. It's so easy for us to have our list. Here is what a Christian is. And if you don't follow my list of rules, if you don't conform to my list of, of what I think a Christian should be and do, then you're not a Christian. If you're a Democrat, 
you can't be a Christian. If you're a Republican, well, you can't be a Christian. Have you heard people talk that way? Do you know that there are Christians who conscientiously take a stand against Christmas and refuse to celebrate Christmas? Do you know that? They believe that they believe we should celebrate the birth of Christ every day. They think that, that Christmas is more harmful than helpful. There are many people who would say, you can't be a Christian and be against Christmas. You see, what we do is we create in our ideas, in our, in our mind, this is what one must do. Yes, we believe on Christ. Yes, what Christ did is great. But there's also this list. And so we get with a young believer... We're trying to disciple this young believer in what it means to be a Christian. And we say, to be a Christian is to trust Christ. And to read your Bible every day. And to pray every day. And to witness to the people that you work with. And to make sure you're involved in missions and evangelism. Don't neglect visiting the people of your church. Make sure that you're caring for the poor. Don't neglect to give your tithe. And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we create this idea that if you fail to do these things, you're not saved. Should we do those things? Yes. But out of love for Christ. Because we are saved. Because in Him is our salvation. Those things are not the grounds of our salvation. They are the fruit, you see. Folks, that is a... That is a <laughs> if you mix that up, you are in dangerous territory. If you begin thinking of your works and your the thing, going to church and giving to the church and, and, and doing things well in your life, seeking to honor God at work and share the gospel and read the Bible and pray, if you mix that up and instead of saying, I do that because I am saved, you take that and you put it at the grounds of your salvation? I'm saved because of those things? That is dangerous territory. Look at verses 30 and 31 with me. 30 and 31. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Genesis 21. After Ishmael mocks Isaac, Sarah sees it. And she goes to Abraham and she says, Abraham, you need to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael in this house for Ishmael will not have your inheritance. It goes to Isaac alone. And God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, listen to Sarah. God did that for us. That we might learn this lesson. The inheritance, the promises of God, are given to the one who is born of God's Spirit, is given to the one who has life because of the power of God, not because of human power, human strength. Those whose Christianity is a matter of what they can do in their own strength will inherit nothing, but will be cast away on the last day. Only those who are spiritually alive because God did what only He could do will inherit. And so here's the great message that Paul sees in Genesis 16. 
those who try and have God's promises, His great salvation, His great blessings by their own strength will utterly fail and all they'll get for their work is a life of slavery. But those who know their inability, those who know their desperation, those who come to God not as one with works to say, save me, look what I can do, but God, I am a beggar. I have nothing. Christ is my only help. And if he fails me, there is no other. Those are the ones who are truly God's. Those are the ones who will truly inherit salvation. We close with the words of this hymn. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty. That is what God freely provides. Glorify true belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merits of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y. Venture on him alone. Let no other trust intrude. Let not conscience make you linger. Let not fitness fondly dream. I'm sorry. Not of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. What does God require of us in order to be right in his sight? Only that we come to the place of seeing our desperate, utter need for Jesus and looking to Him as our only hope. Don't ever think that we add to our salvation by anything we do. It is a faith, and faith alone, because it's of Christ and Christ alone. Amen? Amen. All right. Any questions anybody has before we... uh...